to the Damascus Road podcast. On the road to Damascus, Paul had a radical encounter with Jesus and his life was changed forever. That is what we hope and pray for here. Now, on to this week's episode. I had a pretty momentous thing happen this summer. The type of experience, you know, changes a person. That's right. I saw Top Gun Maverick. Now, after hearing its praises from everyone I knew, even including one famously reserved and reticent Mike DeLuca, who saw it, I think, no less than 15 times, Megan and I finally decided, you know, we had to venture out to our local Cineplex to watch 60-year-old Tom Cruise. Yes, he is 60. (laughs) 60 Six-year-old Tom Cruise show up a bunch of, like, 20-something-year-olds and fly around in these supersonic jets. And I have to say, as much hype as I heard about it beforehand, it lived up to the hype. It is a visceral experience that you feel in your gut, but yet, at the same time, you still really care about the characters. And I think this is because it really understands what was actually the best part of the first Top Gun, and that is Maverick and Goose's beautiful but tragic friendship. And that same friendship kind of forms the heart of Maverick. Now, Top Gun Maverick may have resonated with me, at least in part, because according to this article from The Ringer, it is the last hope for dad cinema. What is dad cinema? You know, it's those movies that dads love. It's movies about war or cars or repressed emotions, just those movies that our dads love. And now, as of this June, I am a dad. There I am with the boy. Um, And now suddenly upon fatherhood, I find myself drawn to movies about men fighting for what they care about, rising above adversity and acknowledging their deep love for their fellow men through nothing more than a, a curt but knowing nod. And also, I think on the other hand, Top Gun Maverick resonated with me because of my own background in aerospace engineering. One of the very first scenes of the movie features Tom Cruise test flying a stealth plane with a scramjet engine going, capable of going Mach 10. If you want to know what a scramjet engine is, ask me later. I'm not going to try and explain it right now. Um, but that scene is incredible. And it brought me back to my junior year of high school. I remember sitting in the back of my physics class reading popular science articles about scramjet engines. I'm pretty sure it was exactly this one. I, I, still, I was able to find it. And this article, I remember reading it, this is what inspired me to study aerospace engineering in the first place. Because I sat there and I imagined myself in 10 years time working on these supersonic jet engines and helping make them a reality. Now instead of that, I'm here. But at least I got to see one of these scramjet engines fictionalized in a movie. Now you also may be wondering as I talk about this, Why was I reading magazine articles in the middle of physics class? After all, if I was dreaming of being a rocket scientist, shouldn't I have been paying better attention in physics? Kind of need to understand the laws of physics in order to design a plane that can go 10 times the speed of sound. Well, here's the deal. I had a bad physics teacher. My physics teacher was no Mr. White or Mr. Jimenez, who I assume are great science teachers. I guess I don't know. I I can't ask their students. But my physics teacher, here's the problem. She didn't understand physics at all. But high school physics was honestly like really easy for me. 
So it didn't really matter. I didn't really need my teacher. I could sit in the back, get my homework done in the first like 10, 15 minutes of class. And once I had done that, I could find something better to do with my time, like read the latest issue of Popular Science, which she had brought into her classroom. And in case there was not a new issue available, well, then I could do the next best thing rather than pay attention. And that would be take some duct tape she left on the back on the lab bench and just kind of play with it and use it to create like columns and pillars and pyramids among the bars under my desk. It's quite impressive. I had way too much time on my hands. You know, we've all had bad teachers. I'm sure I'm not the only one who can remember a bad teacher. And I suppose accidentally inspiring me to study aerospace engineering, even if I didn't do anything with it, is sort of the best case scenario. It kind of did get me to where I am today. But mostly, I think these bad teachers, they just kind of drive us crazy. Uh, they squash our, any, any of our interests in the subject. Or they just kind of end up teaching us nothing, and then at the end of the semester or the end of the year, they fail us. Bad teachers are pretty easy to recognize. Either they don't understand the material, or they can't communicate it well, or they simply don't care. Maybe they don't care about the subject, or they don't care about us. Maybe both. Now, on the other hand, there are false teachers. And that's something we've been talking about these last few weeks. False teachers are a little bit different. And we've been exploring and talking about false teachers as we explored Second Peter. These were false teachers who attacked the trustworthiness of the Bible, false teachers who attacked God's own trustworthiness, and false teachers who attacked the idea of truth itself with their lies. So what do we do about them? False teachers are very dangerous, and they're very destructive, much more so than simply bad teachers are. Through 2 Peter, we've confronted the com these common teachings of false teachers, but the very danger of false teachers is that their teaching sounds so good to us. They aren't like bad teachers who don't care or don't understand or just can't communicate well. False teachers know what they're doing and they care about pulling others into their influence. They appeal to our disordered desires and our different ideas of what leads to the good life. So we need to know how to recognize them. So this week, as we wrap up our summer series, we turn to the book of Jude. Yes, we're going to look at the whole book. It's only one chapter, but we're going to look at the whole book. And as we do so, we are reminded of what we have learned this summer from First and Second Peter as well. Jude offers us now some more perspective and also some strategy for recognizing false teachers. And more importantly, Jude offers us some hope. Now, as we begin, it helps us to know who is Jude. Now, in verse 1, Jude identifies himself. This letter is from Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Now, even though he does not identify himself, himself this way specifically, we know that he, like James, his brother, who wrote the book of James, that he is a brother of Jesus. And both James and Jude are named in the Gospels. Now, in this verse, we see uh, it says Judas, not Jude. But Jude was alternately known as Judah or Judas, depending on the language, translation, or just how good of a friend you were with him. Plus, also, I think I would stop going by Judas kind of after the whole other Judas betrayed Jesus to the Pharisees and all that business. I would probably also change my name. Now, interestingly, I think this is significant. 
none of Jesus' brothers were followers of Jesus before his death. Instead, mostly we kind of see them, they show up and they scoff at Jesus or they come with their mother to kind of bring him home, which may be surprising. You would think the people who know Jesus the best would follow him. But then again, I would ask you to consider how would you respond to your older sibling if they were going around telling you that their father is literally God and they are the Messiah? I don't think I would believe it if my brother did that. Perhaps, and I doubt you would either. On the other hand, one thing I do think is quite remarkable is that after the resurrection, Jesus' brothers become disciples, leaders, and missionaries. James was a leader of the church in Jerusalem, and Jude was known as a traveling preacher. I suppose after witnessing their brother die and rise again from the dead, they kind of finally had to admit that he had a point. I mean, would anything less convince you? Now, since this is a letter, not only do we need to consider who Jude is, we also kind of need to think about who Jude is writing to. Like 1st and 2nd Peter, Jude is a circular or general epistle. It's written to the church at large instead of like a specific church like Romans, which is written to the church in Rome, or a single person like 1st and 2nd Timothy, which are written to Timothy. Jude and these kinds of letters were meant to be passed from church to church. Still, Jude does have his audience in mind. And while Peter seemed to be focused a bit more on writing to Gentile Christians, Jude appears to be writing to Messianic Jews, that is, Jews who've become Christians. And this matters because in his letter, Jude assumes deep knowledge of the Hebrew Bible and other Jewish literature. In his short letter, he makes several references to the Jewish scriptures, our Old Testament, and other books that we've probably never even heard of, but which had deep significance to the Jews of his day. And this helps us understand some of the weirder parts of the book, because we just simply aren't a part of the culture of Jude's audience. And Jude is making reference to significant works of Jewish literature, which just aren't part of our Bible and which we probably have not read today. It's kind of like when I quote C.S. Lewis, helps to know who he is. Jude is writing to them to encourage them, to encourage his audience to contend for the true Christian faith. Because there is a problem with ungodly people and false teachers in the church. In fact, this problem is so great that Jude says he had to completely change the letter he intended to write. He wanted to write something else, but instead had to write about false teachers. And this is the problem they are facing. And Jude writes that I say this. Because some ungodly people have wormed their way into your churches, saying that God's marvelous grace allows us to live immoral lives. The condemnation of such people was recorded long ago, for they have denied our only master, our Lord Jesus Christ. Jude's charge against the false teachers is that they are claiming God's marvelous grace allows us to live immoral lives. I think, I think we hear this today. It's this idea that, well, if God forgives my sins, well, then why can't I do whatever I want? If I sin, God will just forgive me and I'll be fine. That's enticing, isn't it? It's sort of a better to ask forgiveness than ask permission approach to life. I mean, after all, why not enjoy life as I see fit and let God just kind of forgive me later? Now, we'll get to why that's bad theology, but not right away. Why not? Well, because Jude doesn't really get to it, at least not right away. It's not the teaching of these false teachers that Jude targets, but their way of life. 
he reminds his audience that this is not what scripture teaches. This is not what Jesus or the apostles teach. And as compelling as it sounds, rather than argue the point, Jude points to their moral compromise, which reveals their bad theology. Jude writes to warn his audience that this way of life leads only to destruction. And Jude makes two points about these false teachers, and these are rooted deeply in examples from the Hebrew scriptures and Hebrew literature. First, he writes, so I want to remind you, though you already know these things, that Jesus first rescued the nation of Israel from Egypt, but he later destroyed those who did not remain faithful. And I remind you of the angels who did not stay within the limits of authority God gave them, but left the place where they belonged. God has kept them securely chained in prisons of darkness, waiting for the great day of judgment. And don't forget Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighboring towns, which were filled with a morality and every kind of sexual perversion. Those cities were destroyed by fire and they serve as a warning of the eternal fire of God's judgment. In explaining the dangers of this false teaching that grace allows us to do whatever we want, Jude compares this teaching to three rebellions against God and, and against God's ways. And that all ended in destruction and ended with divine justice. So he first, he compares it to the Israelites in Numbers 14. After God delivered the Israelites from slavery in Egypt and led them to the promised land, they rebelled against God out of fear and they refused to enter this land. They did not trust in God, despite God's power demonstrated through their deliverance from Egypt or God's care that was proven to them through God's provision in the desert. And as a result of their disobedience, they had to wander in the desert for an additional 40 years until that whole generation passed away. So in a sense, God gave this generation exactly what they wanted and they never had to enter this land that they feared. Next, Jude says that it is like the fallen angels in Genesis 6, and also from the Jewish book of 1 Enoch, who were believed to have disobeyed God, and who Jews believed were chained in spiritual prisons. Now, this reference is much harder to understand because it depends on this reference to Jewish literature that is outside of the Old Testament. Megan Miller addressed this Genesis 6 passage uh, two weeks ago because Peter makes a similar reference in 2 Peter 2. But to help us understand it, kind of here it is again. Well, there are a number of theories that scholars have on what is going on here. What is most important for us right now is, what the, is understanding what the Jews believed at the time that Jude was writing this. The extra biblical Jewish text, 1 Enoch, that this is referencing, explored this story and the Jews believed that is a reference to fallen angels who had sex with women producing superhero-like offspring. And this was one of the reasons that the flood that we know from, from Noah and his ark, this is one of the reasons why the flood was needed because it had to deal with, God had to deal with this spiritual evil and this violation of God's created order and design. And those fallen angels are now chained in prisons of darkness, according to first Enoch. And this was the popular understanding of Jews at the time. Now you don't have to agree or fully believe that's what's going on, actually going on. Um, Cause it's an odd passage, 
But what matters for our understanding of Jude and Jude's point is what the Jews of the first century believed and why Jude used this, this story as an example to make his greater point. And that is that rebellion against God has consequences. And finally, it is like Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. Sodom and Gomorrah, two of the most depraved cities in the history of the world, where people fully believed that they were free to do whatever they want. They were free to satisfy every one of their desires, even through rape and sexual violence. When Abraham begged God to spare the city, God agreed that the cities would be spared if even five righteous people existed in the city, but none could be found. Only Abraham's nephew Lot and his family would be spared. Now it may seem cruel to destroy whole cities, but God's divine justice prevented the people of Sodom and Gomorrah from committing even more violence and exploiting even more people while also protecting others from being pulled even further into these evil ways. The connecting tissue of all of these rebellions is not only where, not only that they were against God, but they were harming others. They exploited others and they were causing great grief and injustice. These rebellions are so horrible that divine justice, which ends the rebellion, cutting off further sin and protecting others is grace in this world. This is the fruit of these false teachings and this moral compromise. The false teachers are on a path towards destruction. And here Jude makes his second point about the false teachers in comparing them to rebels who corrupt others. So not only are they on a path towards their own destruction, but they are bringing others down with them. And Jude writes, what sorrow awaits them. For they follow in the footsteps of Cain, who killed his brother. Like Balaam, they deceive people for money. And like Korah, they perish in their rebellion. In each of these examples, this rebellion infects others. The story of Cain in Genesis 4 is well known because he murders his brother Abel. But then Cain also goes on to build a city for his descendants where violence reigned. Balaam was hired by an enemy king to curse the Israelites. But when that failed, he lured them into idolatry instead. And we can read about that in Numbers 31. And finally, these false teachers are like Korah, whose rebellion against Moses in Numbers 16 results in disaster and death for many others. And Jude further references scripture and his accusations against these false teachers, comparing them to selfish shepherds, which we can read in Ezekiel 34, to clouds without rain, which is a reference to Proverbs 25, and he compares them to chaotic waves from Isaiah 57. Their self-absorption betrays their claim to follow Jesus. They create chaos wherever they go. Instead of debating theology, Jude is clear about the fruit of their teaching, it's, which is divine justice and destruction for others. False teachers are on a path to destruction and Jude wants to keep them from dragging others down with them. Jude warns us that, my dear friends, you must remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ predicted. They told you that in the last times there would be scoffers whose purpose in life is to satisfy their ungodly desires. These people are the ones who are creating divisions among you. They follow their natural instincts because they do not have God's spirit in them. As we have been dealing in our own community with dangerous false teachings these past few weeks, 
I've been encouraged to find some of the same lies and deceptions in the Bible. The devil's tricks aren't new. Jesus knew it would happen. The apostles predicted it and Judas confronting it in his own time as well. There will be people trying to create divisions among the church who pursue ungodly desires and their natural instinct apart from God through all time. And in light of this, Jude encourages his audience then and now, dear friends, you must build each other up in front, build each other up in your most holy faith. Pray in the power of the Holy Spirit and await the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ who will bring you eternal life. In this way, you will keep yourselves safe in God's love. And you must show mercy to those whose faith is wavering. Rescue others by snatching them from the flames of judgment. Show mercy to still others, but do so with great caution, hating the sins that contaminate their lives. Jude gives us some tangible encouragement on what to do, and we'll touch on the specifics of that guidance in a little bit. Right now, what I want to emphasize is that Jude challenges us to remain faithful, not only to God, but to each other. Because in this way, we will be safe from false teachers that, and we can help keep others safe as well. And these instructions really emphasize how important we are to one another as the body of Christ, as the church. Together, we can encourage one another. We can pray for one another and lift each other up while we are struggling. This is the difference between the faithful and the false teachers. False teachers drag others down with them. As followers of God, we lift one another up. Jude does not debate the theology of grace, but instead examines the lives of those who live as if it frees us to do anything compared to those who are bound together by grace and by love. Jude focuses on moral choices, not theology. But one thing we can learn about grace through Jude is that God's grace demands a whole life response. Our moral lives are different because of God's grace. We live differently from others. And this is because loving Jesus means obeying Jesus. Jude hearkens back to the gospels and Jesus teaching in John 14. If you love me, obey my commandments. And I will ask the father and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. The world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him. But you know him because he lives with you now and later will be in you. No, I will not abandon you as orphans. I will come to you. Soon the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Since I live, you also will live. When I am raised to life again, you will know that I am my father and you are in me and I am in you. Those who accept my commandments and obey them are the ones who love me. And because they love me, my father will love them and I will love them and reveal myself to each of them. It is our obedience to Jesus that demonstrates our love for Jesus. It's our response to the grace and to the Holy Spirit in us. Grace does not free us to do whatever we wish as the false teachers in Jude, that Jude is confronting claim. Grace, which we receive freely from God, then frees us from sin so that we may obey Jesus and follow him into a life that is worth living. 
And in this grace, we receive a new identity. Remember back to first Peter, who is writing to his audience to encourage them to recognize their new identity as people of God. Peter uses language of the exile and of being chosen by God. This is language of the Old Testament. And he encourages us to recognize that our home is not here in this world, but instead that we are claimed by God and we belong to the kingdom. And this is the foundation of our hope and our faith. This establishes our identity as people of God. Now, Peter was writing mostly to Gentiles and Jude now is writing mostly to Jews. But we see here that we are all a part of this new identity. Jude addresses his audience in verse one as all who have been called by God, the father who loves you and keeps you safe in the care of Jesus Christ. And as we sort through how we may respond to Jude, we first need to be present. We need to be a part of a Christian community because we cannot do it alone. We need to be present to, to build each other up in the faith. We ourselves have experienced how this strategy of the devil is to isolate and lie. When we are isolated, it's just so much easier to believe lies. We have no one to check with and no one to confront the false claims that we have begun to believe. And many of these lies are about God and about one another. God wants you to have whatever you want. That's what's going to lead to happiness. Grace really does for you to do whatever you want, even if it is self-destructive and is going to hurt you and hurt others. Anyone who doesn't support that hates you. They're trying to control you. We need one another to confront these lies of the false teachers and of the devil. Next, we need to practice prayer as we pray for one another. Jude encourages his audience to pray in the power of the Holy Spirit. In prayer, we experience God's presence in our own lives and in our community. I fasted this last Tuesday as Megan and Ryan encouraged us to do. And following their lead, I allowed my hunger pains to be cues to prayer. And I had a lot of hunger pains. So even though some of those times I didn't really turn to prayer and instead I just found myself a little more focused on my own desire for food, I still had many, many other opportunities to pray and pray to the real source of life and love, God, as I turned to God and prayed for my church community. It is powerful to submit your needs to God and to lean on God instead of your own ability. And finally, we need to participate in community and encourage one another. Jude writes that we must build each other up in your most holy faith and to show mercy to those whose faith is wavering. Faith needs others to encourage it. Faith needs others to help confront lies, to sort through the truth. Don't struggle alone and don't shame others who are struggling, but instead build each other up in the faith. We need to be rooted enough in community, both to be able to pray for one another and to encourage one another, as well as to receive prayer and to receive encouragement from others. Now, we have had an eventful summer, to say the least. There have been babies born, new friends have arrived, and old friends have left us. We've practiced Sabbath and sabbaticals, all while diving into these letters of 1 Peter, 2 Peter, and Jude. These are bold letters about how to remain faithful in a changing world and to be steadfast against false teachers. And the core of all of this for us to remember is this. We are invited into God's kingdom by the grace of Jesus Christ. 
Nothing in this world can take us from God or destroy God's kingdom. And even when things seem seem scary or sad or vulnerable, God is with us, leading us home. Jude, again, he identifies those he's writing to as all who have been called by God, the Father, who loves you and keeps you safe in the care of Jesus Christ. And that includes us. When times are tough, we can rest in God's love. We can encourage one another out of that bounty, that love of God, which, which fills us and overflows. We all belong to God and we are all in this together, safe in the care of Jesus Christ. And with that in mind, Jude ends his letter in a prayer of praise. So I want to read that. I want to end our summer likewise. So please pray with me as I repeat Jude's prayer. Now all glory to God who is able to keep you from falling away and will bring you with great joy into his glorious presence without a single fault. All glory to him who alone is God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord. All glory, majesty, power, and authority are his before all time and in the present and beyond all time. Amen. Thank you for joining the Damascus Road Podcast. Our mission is to follow Jesus together by being with God, loving everyone, transforming people, developing leaders, growing new ministries, and changing the world. You can find out more about us online at damascusroadtucson.com.